The Literate Caveman, Episode 17. Welcome to the Literate Caveman Podcast. This podcast offers reviews of excellent books that you may not be familiar with, as well as addressing the topic of mindset in general. I'm your host, Chad Blake, and today we are going to continue our review of The Logic of Failure by Dietrich Dorner. In our last episode, we discussed differences between forward and reverse planning. We also discussed how focusing exercises such as hill climbing, identifying intermediate goals, analyzing past success, and the concept of efficiency diversity can help us when goals are not well defined. We also talked a little about how thinking and analogy can sometimes help us to understand complex problems. In today's episode, we are nearing the end of the book. We are going to discuss what author Dietrich Dorner calls the elaboration index. We're going to discuss the differences between unqualified versus qualified expressions and what they can suggest to us about decision makers or our own decision making process for that matter. And wrap up with a discussion of what Dorner terms ballistic behavior with an interesting study that was similar to his Tannerland study, but with a significant twist. In a unique study, two psychologists, as Dorner puts it, conducted an interesting experiment that exposed the common propensity for deconditionalized planning. The framework for this study was particularly interesting. What they did was take actual events from the reign of Louis XVI in France from the year 1787. For the benefit of those who may not know, the French Revolution began in 1787 shortly after the events this study was framed around, and continued through 1799, which among other things saw Napoleon Bonaparte rise to power. There were many results of the French Revolution. One of them, that is pertinent to our discussion today, is that King Louis XVI was executed in 1793. Something the experiment leads did that was interesting was they laid down the framework of the events of the time, but in order to prevent the participants from predicting the situation based off any history they may have been familiar with, they disguised the situation by saying it developed in ancient China around 300 BC. Once the situation was explained, the participants were assigned the role of king and given 45 minutes to lay plans. Dorner tells us that the time constraint was intentional so that participants would not have the leisure to fully grasp all the circumstances. The subject of the experiment was a tax reform that had been presented by Charles Alexandre de Cologne, which had been rejected by Louis XVI's Assembly of Notables, and is considered a key event that sparked the French Revolution. It was not the only event. If you take time to read up on it, there was a lot going on, and like anything from history, the events are not all straightforward. Alright, so recapping that really quick, we have details from the French Revolution. Actually, this event is pre-revolution, during the reign of Louis XVI, who was beheaded in 1793 as a result of the revolution, and the misdirect in this case was the events were set in ancient China to keep the participants from knowing what would happen. A quote from the text. One participant who did not recognize the situation as that of Louis XVI said after reading the instructions and the description of the experiment, quote, I think that in a situation like this, I would wind up with my head on the block. Considering that is exactly what happened to Louis XVI and to his queen, 
Austrian-born Marie Antoinette. That was an interesting statement. For this experiment, the study administrators evaluated participants on their degree of elaboration and their ability to identify and assign conditions to their intentions. They established an elaboration index that measured a participant's goal and the plans for achieving that goal. Detailed goals and plans received higher indexes. Vague and or unspecific goals and plans received lower indexes. As far as identifying and assigning conditions, Dorner does not tell us exactly how that was measured, but he does say it was a factor and the study administrators paid attention too. Dorner tells us that some of the participants merely proposed goals and made very vague statements about how those goals would be executed, and paid little attention to what conditions would be necessary to execute the goals. The examples he shares are interesting. Some of the participants suggested that the national budget be balanced by forcing the nobles to pay taxes. You might remember that what kicked off the revolution in France was just such a proposal, and that proposal had already been rejected by the fictional court in the study example that was set in ancient China. Another example of a well-intentioned idea, but one that exhibited no planning, thus scoring low on the elaboration index, and also a lack of conditions that would make this possible was a statement that, quote, the first thing we will do is produce an export surplus, end quote. An export surplus may be a fine economic idea, but it sounds like there was no effort to determine what goods were being exported or what the market was like, thus not meeting any conditions. Dorner tells his reader that several of the participants were quite capable of producing detailed plans and they did better overall on this study. For those participants, both their elaboration index and their attention to conditions was much higher. In a similar study, I think it might have involved the same parameters, but that is not made very clear, it was investigated to what extent participants coordinated their individual efforts. In other words, the successful participants not only displayed a high elaboration index, and a high degree of either identifying or establishing necessary conditions for their goals, but they also devised primary measures to support their secondary measures. What Dorner explains is that the more successful participants organized their goals and identified priorities, the less successful participants compiled what Dorner describes as a quote-unquote laundry list of goals, a jumble with no distinction between primary and secondary concerns. He notes that he observed this in his Greenville experiment as well. In a second experiment, the same researchers who conducted the French Revolution staged an ancient China event looked for correlations between elaboration indexes, measures proposed in political situations, such as what happened during the reign of Louis XVI, as well as the results in Dorner's Tannerland experiment. The Tannerland experiment, in case you are new to my podcast, or if that just does not sound familiar, was an experiment in which the participants were placed in charge of a fictional tribe of Moros in a place called Tanaland, who depended on their cattle and their millet crop, both for trade and for their own needs. In the simulation, they had problems with infant mortality, irrigation, and a local species of fly that caused infections in the cattle. The research found that participants who did well in their French Revolution experiment also did well in Dorner's Tanaland experiment. Dorner does not seem to be certain why, 
but he relates that according to the results of this research, people who have a stronger tendency to plan their measures with greater elaboration and qualify the required conditions do better in these kinds of simulations. From here, he moves on to a researcher named Thomas Roth. Like Dorner, Roth used a simulation program to conduct experiments, and the one reviewed here was called Taylor Shop. In the experiment, participants were tasked with managing a small plant that manufactured clothing. Roth was interested in identifying characteristics of good problem solvers. Similar to Dorner, Roth studied the language participants used while engaged in this simulation. What Roth found between the participants who performed well and those who performed poorly was interesting tendencies to use specific language. The poor performers tended towards unqualified expressions, such as constantly, every time, without exception, etc. The good participants, on the other hand, tended towards qualified expressions, now and then, in general, often, etc. The lists of unqualified and qualified expressions are quite a bit longer, but I'm sure you understand the themes. Quoting from the text, the good problem solvers had a stronger tendency to take circumstances and exceptions into account, that stress main points but do not ignore subordinate ones, and this suggests possibilities. And of the bad problem solvers, he tells us, used absolute concepts that do not admit of other possibilities or circumstances. Dorner tells us that what was observed was on the one hand the willingness to analyze and define reasons, and on the other hand, dogmatism and assertions. From here, Dorner explains that while he is not certain why some people will take conditions into account when working on a complex problem and others will not, it is worth noting that planning that ignores conditions is faster and easier, and it can produce a clear idea of what the person in question is working towards. That is not to say it produces good results, but it is good to recognize, or at least consider, why it is consistent behavior in some people. Wrapping up this chapter, the author gives some detail about another interesting study and some of the behaviors it revealed. Quoting from the text introducing this section, If we have planned, reached a decision, and implemented that decision, either by acting ourselves or by delegating the execution of our measures to others, in most cases, those measures will have consequences. He goes on to say, Studying the consequences of our measures gives us excellent opportunities for correcting our incorrect behavioral tendencies and assumptions about reality. If our measures yield unexpected consequences, there must be reasons. End quote. So we have an opportunity to evaluate our actions and assess the outcomes. This provides an opportunity to reflect not just on our choices, but on our decision-making process and make improvements. Dorner suggests if we identify an unexpected result, we should figure out in the first place if we had false premises or an incorrect, incomplete, or imprecise picture of reality. Once we have narrowed this down, we can ask ourselves why our reality model, as he calls it, was off the mark. There are a lot of possibilities. Some things to consider are, did we use the wrong method or methods for gathering information? Or, perhaps we stopped gathering information too soon. Perhaps we formed a hypothesis that turned out to be incorrect. He also suggests 
It is possible that the complexity of a situation can make unexpected results unavoidable. Or, is there a possibility the measures were good ones, but that they were not executed correctly? Regardless of the reasons for finding unexpected results, we have an opportunity to improve our future decision-making. What Dorner has observed, instead of the average person analyzing their decisions and using the experience to improve, is people developing strategies to avoid confronting the consequences of their actions. One of these I found very interesting. Dorner calls it ballistic behavior. The inspiration for the term ballistic behavior is a cannonball. The point is that once a cannonball is fired, the person doing the firing has no further influence over it. The laws of physics are all that matter. In effect, the result is out of our hands. Obviously, or maybe I should say hopefully, someone aimed the cannon. In this analogy, aiming would represent the planning phase. Dorner contrasts the operation of a cannonball, which is aimed, fired, and then flies its course, with that of a rocket, which can be controlled after it is launched, either by a pilot or by remote control. Quoting from the text, It is clear that as a general principle, behavior should not be ballistic. Because our grasp of reality can only be partial, we have to be able to adjust the course of our actions after we have launched them. Analyzing the consequences of our behavior is crucial for making these ex post facto adjustments. The next study Dorner shares with his reader was conducted by Franz Ryther. One of the things about this study that is interesting is instead of working alone, the participants were organized into teams of five. The objective was to render aid to a fictitious region of the Sahel. The tribe in the fictitious region were called Degas, and like the Moros in Dorner's Tanaland experiment, they lived on a combination of cattle and crops they grew. Participants had the power, keep in mind this was a simulation, not any kind of actual event, to pursue measures they believed would help the Degas without practical limitations. They could experiment with new kinds of fertilizer, introduce new breeds of cattle, or bring in heavy machinery to help with the crops, just as a few examples. The researchers tracked how often participants asked what impact the decisions they made had. Surprisingly, during the first phase of the experiment, which was replicated to equal five years of life in the Sahil, the participants only checked on their decisions 30% of the time. In the second phase of the experiment, representing another five-year period, this number rose to 50%. Relating this back to our cannonball analogy, our ballistic analogy, Dorner muses that it is strange to him that rational people faced with a system they cannot fully understand, would not seize every chance to learn more about it, and would therefore behave non-ballistically. For the most part, it seems the participants shot off their decisions with no thought for how they would work out. Dorner agrees that this seems strange, but he offers an interesting explanation. Quoting from the text, If we never look at the consequences of our behavior, we can always maintain the illusion of our competence. He goes on to say, if we make a decision to correct a deficiency and then never check on the consequences of that decision, we can believe that the, that the deficiency has been corrected. End quote. In his words, ballistic behavior has the great advantage of relieving us of all accountability. This kind of behavior is not without purpose. It makes it easier for people to handle confusing situations 
and increases faith in their own abilities, or perceived abilities. In the next phase of this experiment, this would be after the tenth year inside the simulation, the study introduced a catastrophe. A neighboring state invaded the land of the Dagus and overtook 30% of their lands. The participants were informed that the Dagus still had enough land for their cattle and their crops. Dorner does not mention how aggressive the overtaking of the land was supposed to have been, so I, didn't, I do not know if within the simulation there were supposed to be fatalities. So the view of the study presenter, Ryther, and Dorner is that no action was really required at that point. However, Ryther relates that nearly all the study participants chose to create a military force among the Dagus, who in this simulation had no previous military experience. Funds had to be raised for this purpose, and it was decided that both the field crops and the cattle revenue needed to be increased. In addition, conscription was introduced. This depleted the main workforce, and to make up for this, participants required more labor from the women and children. Dorner tells his reader that all these sudden changes in strategies, and thus behavior on the participants' standpoint, caused the participants to feel like their competence was taking a hit. Correspondingly, what Dorner has termed ballistic behavior increased. For the next two phases of the simulation, representing years 11 to 15 and 16 to 20, the engagement on decisions dropped from 50% to 10%. That would mean, if the participants made 100 decisions over a simulated five-year period, they were only asking how 10 of those decisions worked out. And then another interesting thing happened. This is what the researchers call the dosage of measures. A couple of examples given are, if participants apply three tons of fertilizer to an acre of land, that is a higher dose than if they applied two tons. Or, if they decide to drill for 30 new wells to support the increased demand for cattle and, and irrigation, that is a higher dosage than if they were to drill 10 wells. The lead researcher, Franz Ryther, collected data on the variability of the dosages of applied by participants. What Dorner explains is that if the dosages applied by participants is fairly consistent, the variability is low. So if all the participants independently of each other decided to drill 10 new wells, that would be a low variability. However, if some participants decided to drill 30 wells and others decided to drill 10 wells, that would represent a high variability. Leading up to the catastrophe of the invasion, and subsequent occupation, the variability was moderate. However, after the catastrophe, Ryther saw that participants resorted either to stronger means or to weaker means. One of these is ballistic and the other is resignation. Quoting from the text, these results also support the idea that activity may foster an illusion of competence. By intervening massively, a person demonstrates his competence at least to him or herself. On the other hand, participants whose dosage went down seem to be displaying resignation, helplessness to do anything effective. Finally, at the end of the experiment, the participants were asked to review the decisions they had made and to rank those decisions in terms of how much they felt that they had deviated from their moral and ethical standards. The results of that are a little startling. In the first two phases of the experiment, the deviations were fairly small. But after the invasion crisis, 
the deviations were statistically significant. Quoting from the text, Not only did the crisis and the loss of competence accompanying it cause participants to act more ballistically and to raise the dosages of their measures, but the participants began to act on the principle that ends justify means, and paid less attention to overarching moral standards. We find here, in short, a drift towards cynicism and the erosion of moral standards. End quote. Dorner is not surprised by the fact that challenges can cause some people to move towards the end justify the means, but he does point out that in the context of an unthreatening simulation, the statistically significant and consistent as he calls it, drift towards cynicism and the erosion of moral standards, should give us something to think about. From here, Dorner reviews some of the mental gymnastics we use to avoid confronting the negative consequences of our own actions. What he calls ballistic behavior is obviously on the list, but that tendency is not alone. There is also external attribution, which is simply blaming external circumstances for our own decisions. I do not think Dorner is suggesting that external circumstances do not play a role in things that are outside of our control. He is just pointing out that the tendency to blame external circumstances can be a tactic to avoid confronting the negative consequences of our own actions. Another form of interpreting away one's failings is to invert goals. We discussed that a few episodes back. Essentially, it involves claiming a bad result is a good result, such as a participant in Dorner's Tannaland simulation who claimed the famine caused by their choices would be good for the long-term population structure of the people of Tannaland. The next strategy used to avoid confronting the negative consequences of our actions is a mouthful. The explanation makes a lot of sense, but the term used is, well, here we go, immunizing marginal conditionalizing. Even I probably will not throw that into a casual conversation. Okay, I probably will, because I am like that, but I still think it is an awkward phrase. As far as what it means, I'll quote from the text again and then explain. As a rule, measure A produces effect B we can reason, but under certain limited conditions that are unfortunately prevailing just at this moment, measure A produces other effects. What kind of effects, you might ask? Well. During the experiment Dorner conducted, where participants were tasked with adjusting the setting on a refrigeration unit that had a broken regulator, and the regulator and the temperature relationship were not obvious, but did in fact work, the participants just had to be patient and find the right setting. One of the participants convinced himself that odd settings on the regulator would raise the temperature, and even settings would send the temperature down. But when he observed, the temperature go down on an odd number, instead of recognizing that his theory about its operation was incorrect, he decided that if the regulator was set at 100, immediately before it was set on an odd number, and the range was from 0 to 200, it changed the way the regulator operated. Dorner tells us that in that experiment, the feedback was frequent enough that participants could not delude themselves for a long time, or, as Dorner phrases it, too frequently for anyone to be able to protect incorrect hypothesis or very long by conditionalizing on the basis of local and therefore irrelevant circumstances. However, he warns, when feedback is infrequent, and if it is easy to ignore, 
Immunizing marginal conditionalizing is easy to fall back on to avoid confronting the negative consequences of our actions. All right, that concludes this section of the text. And that wraps up today's episode of The Literate Caveman. Next week, we will wrap up our discussion on the, of the logic of failure. Thank you for listening. Now go read a book.